0: and welcome back to Out of the Closet and Into the Pews. This podcast aims to mark and celebrate an emerging theological and religious scholarship among religious people who self-identify as queer. Out of the Closet and Into the Pews aims to get us to understand that queer power is not an inherently secular movement, but rather that many queer folk understand social movements to be associated with their faith. For the last 20 years, queer theologians and communities have been developing contextual theologies to challenge and critique the ingrained heteronormativity in theological thought, spiritual practices, and institutional governance. This really led me to question what liberation really means to queer individuals and communities of faith. During the last 10 years, the voices of queer religious people have really started to emerge, but in doing so have highlighted the challenge of multiplicity. Those of us who are queer people of faith experience multiplicity all the time. We belong to multiple communities, queer, religious, spiritual, but yet we are often asked to choose one over the other. Am I queer today, and if so, do I downplay my religion and spirituality, or am I religious today and therefore downplay my queerness? Those of us who are queer and religious seem to live and exist in a third space that is created by the intersections of our sexualities and our religious identities. As queer religious people, many of us never feel at home, but many of us find the solace in our religion. This podcast, through interviews with religious scholars and practitioners, aims to show that religious and queer identities do not have to be seen as competing, but rather can be both salient in a person's sense of self. In order to do so, this podcast deals with the historical development of the secularization process, queer rights, and equity in order to understand that religion does not always have to be framed as an oppressive vehicle to overcome. By depicting the difficult and often unarticulated relationships among secularism, religion, and queer liberation, this podcast wants to lay the groundwork to highlight how the secular does not guarantee a tolerant state along LGBTQ rights. In doing so, this podcast states that while secularity may be compatible with liberation in some forms, it is not a linear process and therefore, it does not lead to emancipation for all. Simply put by Rossi Toti, queer activists cannot be simply secular, or secular in a simple self-evident sense, because they live in the same nation that limits their freedom and protection by upholding biased views that have an invested interest in preserving hegemonic and heteronormative power structures. In speaking with scholars and practitioners, and when discussing examples of queer religious representation, this podcast emphasizes that queer emancipation is not a parallel line with secularity, because secular criteria rest upon values that are not neutral or rational. More specifically, secularity and queer emancipation are not inherently aligned, because societal values are chosen and enforced by those in power, and when values are enacted, they do not always consider LGBTQ identities, or LGBTQ identity holders are really the ones in control. However, this podcast wants to go further than just say secularism does not guarantee freedom and protection for all. It also wants to state that religion can and has been able to provide shelter, liberation and freedom for LGBTQ plus identities, and in some cases may even lead to emancipation in ways that secularism cannot. To understand why secularism does not guarantee tolerance for all, we must turn to the work of Talal Asad and Sabah Mahmoud. Talal Assad, in his critical work on the secular formations, points out that the modern subjectivity entails a strong emphasis on moral and individual agency. By this, Assad means that the notion of resistance often takes for granted that individuals have agency. However, in categorizing the nation state's invested interest, Assad uncovers that while individuals may have agency, only some have the structural systems of power that come with it. From this, Assad emphasises that the theoretical narrative of modernity is intertwined with the religious sphere. Therefore, if modernity, or indeed secularity, is linked with religion, then the individual's emancipation cannot be correlated to freedom from religion's control as previous seculars may have allowed us to believe. Assad states that agency is connected to the conception of resistance and the assertion of one's rights against tradition and social norms. In this perspective, Assad is challenging secularists to acknowledge how they have failed to see the ideological and religious charge of the very values they perceive to be secular, normative, and neutral. Assad provides this podcast for a way to think and understand how secularity is not linear, as we may have previously thought, and that queer liberation is clearly not parallel to secularism through his foundational argument that a secular state does not and cannot guarantee tolerance, because it puts into play different structures of ambition and fear. Assad states that the law never seeks to eliminate violence since its objective has always been to regulate violence. Rather than associating a secular state with reason and tolerance, Assad depicts it as characterized by violence and inequality. Assad even goes on to say that the liberal public sphere has always excluded certain kinds of people, including women, subjects without property, and members of religious minorities. For Assad, the secular nation-state, particularly in the West, is a space of social exclusion in which those who share the values of those in power are invited to navigate and assert their identities, whether it be about religion, gender, race, or sexuality. While Assad is telling us that as scholars, we must question our assumptions about secularity and modernity, he is also telling us that at all costs, we must avoid our tendency to characterize inequality and violence as religious. Thus, Assad challenges us to see how the political categories of religious versus secular have created misunderstandings and violence in the modern world, in particular, the Western world. For Assad, the foundations of the secular are formative in Western narratives of collective. Therefore, it allows secularity to draw the lines in a nation-state concerning what constitutes violence, pain, and suffering. It is clear that a secular state is not a pluralistic society that values differing belief systems, but rather it gives privileges to the values it intends to preserve. In relation to this podcast, the values that secularity intends to preserve are heteronormative power structures. Sabah Mahmoud furthers the work of Talal Asad to depict how the theory of secularization is less about regulating religion and politics but rather about the regulation of religious life in the name of it enforcing and protecting religious freedoms. It is clear that Mahmoud is not trying to replace the secular with religion or create a hierarchy between the two, but rather she is emphasising the limits of secular authority. Mahmood notes that while the law is meant to be supposedly impartial to all, the Western world at large is bound to fail because of its invested interest in maintaining structures and systems of power. For Mahmood, it is critical to dispel the idea that liberation and sexuality, which in some ways may seem to be inherently connected, can somehow ensure tolerance of diverse perspectives and identities. In Mahmoud's analysis, the secular fails not only to deliver on the promise of freedom, but also protection, in that the nation-state is often involved and regulates the violence against bodies that do not fit the national body. This brings to light how more than often in the Western world, guarantees of tolerance have been bound to specific secular logics of power, therefore reinforcing how emancipation constructs are often understood as reflecting a relationship with only the secular, when in reality the secular is bound to its own dimensions of prejudice, hate, and discrimination. By way of understanding Talal Asad and Sabah Mahmud's critique of the notion that a secular state guarantees tolerance, we are left with even more questions about how to deal with structural inequalities in a pluralistic society under a secular state. More specifically, how to deal with these inequalities when those in power are using secularity as a justification for dominance and oppression. By understanding the historical development of the secularization thesis, it is clear that the construction of religion as only problematic and oppressive in progressive discourses, and specifically queer discourses, has become an essential strategy for those in power to neglect the marginalized voices that are suffering the most. This has left this podcast with questions about why secularism cannot be the only agent of queer liberation. In recent years, scholars of queer studies and religion have called for a critical examination of how sexuality can take ground in the field of religious studies. For many queer theorists, religion has been characterized as another patriarchal institution that has limited sexual freedom and even left behind LGBTQ plus liberation. Furthermore, the fight for LGBTQ plus rights and equality seems to depict religious institutions and queer rights as on opposing sides. By utilizing Talal Asad and Saba Mahmoud's critical analysis of the relationship between secularity and Islam, it is evident that the notion that a secular state is not tolerant, has parallels that extend past Islam and in relation to other marginalized identities. More than this, in combination with the understanding that in the construction of secularity, certain identities are excluded from the nation-state, it is apparent that we can apply Assad and Mahmoud's analysis of secular criteria to queer sexuality and emancipation, thus deconstructing the secular narrative of liberation, whereby sexual freedom is parallel to an increase in the decline of religion. This podcast wants to confront scholars of queer studies and religion to see how sexual liberation has been seen as a principle of embracing modernity. You can only be sexually free if you leave behind the hard truths of the age, aka religion, and accept modernity. However, out of the closet and into the pews is not trying to replace sexual freedom with religious freedom, but rather aims to ask questions that assume it is impossible to analyze how homophobia emerges in a secular state, because homophobia can only be connected to religion's institutional authority and power. Queer theorist Judith Butler provides analysis for how the Dutch government uses openly gay men as a marker of modernity to signify process. Thereby, Butler is questioning how equating LGBTQ lives with secular criteria and political modernity. Butler is critiquing the assumption that a secular nation is grounded in equality and autonomy for LGBTQ individuals and that religion is responsible for the hierarchical differences between heteronormativity and queer society. For Butler, this framework neglects the queer exclusion from a secular nation, and fails to present the continuous obstacles secular societies present for queer identities. Butler is also providing us a central critique about queer theory in stating that queer theorists, historical precedents and conceptual relationships with religion has allowed the idea that religion is only oppressive to persist in queer theory. Butler argues that we must investigate how queer individuals can be liberated by religion, and to do this we must begin by blurring the relationship between queer theory and religion. From Butler's work we can see how secular power seeks to privatize religion. In doing so, secularity attempts to confine religion as incompatible with LGBTQ identities and lives. To put this another way, Butler challenges the idea that a secular world is a society of political inclusion. If this were the case, there would not be laws that prevent local government entities from passing discrimination protections for LGBTQ communities. This provides a critical avenue to unpack what queer religious representation looks like and how it functions to provide liberation and emancipation in ways that the secular does not. To do this, we must understand liberation theology. Queer religion and theology typically challenge conventional ideas of queerness and religion To ask whether it is possible to be both simultaneously. When approaching queer religious representation, we must seek to engage and reshape traditional discourses that construct religion and queerness as separate identities. The tenets of liberation theology can be utilized by the queer community to liberate themselves from mainstream theology. Liberation theology has two basic principles. First, it recognizes a need for liberation from any kind of oppression political, economic, social, sexual, racial, or religious. Second, it asserts that the theology must grow out of the basic religious communities and should not be imposed from any of the above. Liberation theology, while often found in the academic setting, is first and foremost in community. Liberation theologians keep one foot in the center of study, but the other foot is in community. The focus is kept on community because the liberation theology is primarily a theology of the people. Liberation theology is done by everyday people in base communities. It is there alongside the people speaking, listening, asking questions, and being asked questions. Liberation theology often comes out of the very painful experiences of exclusion, discrimination, and violence arising from prejudice and oppression. Queer people of faith deserve a queer theology that is not just inclusive, but takes into account their distinct experiences. LGBTQ people endure violence towards their community, struggles with coming out, and political discrimination. Queer theology uses these experiences to help the community find their place. Queer theology, in addition to using the unique experiences of LGBTQ people, also reclaims the right to sexuality and reclaims the right to love. Queer theology will allow the LGBTQ community to reclaim their space in religion and spirituality. When discussing how queer theology and religion allows the LGBTQ community to reclaim their space in religion and spirituality, I want to turn to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, an example of queer religious liberation and representation. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are an order of queer and transgender nuns who devote their lives to community service, ministry, promoting human rights and outreach for queer individuals in a secular society. According to scholar of religion Melissa Wilcox, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are dedicated to the promulgation of universal joy and expiation of systemic guilt. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence identify as a 40-year-old religiously affiliated order of non-celibate self-pronouncing and self-prescribing queer nuns, who manifest when they are needed and who otherwise lead what they term secular lives outside of the order. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence perform their mission through long-standing activism, including sexual education, public manifestations, protests, and fundraising for LGBTQ organizations, especially in the wake of the AIDS crisis. As we uncovered previously, through the foundations of secularism, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are an example of the destabilizing of narratives that construct religious life as incompatible with LGBTQ identities. In order to examine the intersections of religion and queerness, and the complex and nuanced relationship between religion, queerness, performance, play, and justice, we must examine Melissa Wilcox's monograph, Queer Nuns. Although it may seem that the sisters are solely recreational or an avenue to ridicule the Catholic Church in relation to its stance on homosexuality, it is clear that the sisters of perpetual indulgence are emulating the Catholic institution of nuns to provide us with a way to investigate how religion can and has liberated LGBTQ individuals through the simultaneous claiming of moral high ground and decreeing of institutional injustices. Within the context of Wilcox's analysis, the sisters both queer and critique the Roman Catholic Church's teachings on gender and sexuality, while concurrently claiming in all seriousness to be an order of queer nuns that provide shelter, liberation and freedom for LGBTQ identities. By actively confounding common conceptions of religion, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence show us a way of serious parody, a concept coined by Melissa Wilcox, that combines familiar tropes of drag, female religious renouncing, to produce a depiction of how religion has opened a space for both vocal political protests and day-to-day community service and activism, but also a space for queer identities. To understand how the sisters work we must understand how they situate themselves within and against the various discourses through which they identify. This term is known as disidentification, and is the process in which minority groups disrupt cultural stereotypes by performing them in a way that critiques their social and symbolic power. This aspect of performative identity challenges the notion of the subject by illustrating how identity can be fluid. In the case of the sisters, they challenge the notion of a nun being a fixed category. By constructing their own definition of a nun within the le- by constructing their own definition of a nun within the legitimated field of the Catholic Church, the sisters are able to create their own space and through it situate broader conversations about it what about what it means to hold both queer and religious identities. In the context of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, for gay men to flaunt their disidentifications with the performance of masculinity, through the wearing of pre-Vatican II habits, corsets, fishnets, and glitter, they are challenging the ingrained heteronormativity of a secular society. Thus, the sisters can liberate themselves from aggressive sexual ideas and regain a religious perspective of freedom, sexuality, and safety. This strategy deployed by the sisters exposes the limits of public speech, secular criteria as an emancipation ideology for LGBTQ individuals, transforms discursive demands into virtual images, and celebrates social leveling while decentering discourse within the political system. This illustrates how the work of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence is political, because they are a way of simul- simultaneously critiquing and reclaiming cultural traditions in the interest of supporting the lines and political objectives of marginalized groups. By navigating the Sisters' use of serious parody, it is clear that they are challenging topics of power, patriarchy, binary, heterosexuality, and secularism to underpin existing power dynamics through an approach to community-based activism. In my opinion, a congregation that is blessed by a dildo, offers yogurt-filled condoms at a funeral, and hosts a condom savior mass where participants vow to use protection in the wake of the AIDS crisis, draws attention to a new world of religious activism, one that is focused on depicting how religious and queer identities can intersect in profound ways, and even provide forms of freedom that secularism cannot. Ultimately, the sisters construct a sacred space of parity that provides its members with the ability to be liberated individually individually and connect through religion. Thus, the sisters establish a queer space that provides queer religious individuals a sense of belonging. In doing so, they provide an avenue for emancipation from the homophobia and transphobia that exists within a secular nation-state. While I have remarked about the implications for studying the intersections of queer theory and religion, through the investigation of examples of queer religious liberation, I also want to suggest that as scholars, we must focus upon creating an approach to queer religion that accounts for networks of power and authority that exist in race, gender, socioeconomic status, and other marginalized identities at the intersections of sexuality. In understanding examples of queer religious liberation, queer theory must move away from centering white, gay, Western men as the sole authors of LGBTQ experiences. Narratives of queer religious emancipation provide us a way to examine how different identities participate, not necessarily alongside in the development of queer identity. This podcast is aimed to provide a new understanding of secularism and liberation in order to highlight that queer liberation does not align with the process of progress and freedom. A queer religious reading of secularity has provided a critical avenue to understand the process and the construction of queer religious identity. This podcast wanted to show that secular arrangements of power are often heteronormative arrangements of power, and directly question secularism's abilities for emancipation, for queer identities, and even go further to state that religion may lead to queer liberation in ways that secularism cannot. This podcast provided a critique of the secularization thesis as a process of progress to emphasize that while queer rights have been achieved primarily in secular environments, Secularism as an ideology does not count for the unarticulated relationship between queerness and religion. In other words, secular criteria is conflated with particular arrangements of heteronormative power structures. Examples of these heteronormative power structures include the United States, where since 2016 the Trump administration has been repelling and undermining protections for LGBTQ plus people, And even in France, where adoption agencies have outright favored heterosexual couples to prevent LGBTQ plus couples from parenting. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast aims to mark and celebrate an emerging theological and religious scholarship among religious people who self-identify as queer. Out of the Closet and into the Pews aims to get us to understand that queer power is not inherently a secular movement, but rather that many queer folk understand social movements to be associated with their faith. In episode 1, we have laid out the foundations of secularism in order to understand that a queer liberation grounded in religion does and can exist. In episodes 2 to 5, we will speak with religion and sociology scholars Dr. Melissa Wilcox, Dr. Heather White, Dr. Janet Jacobson, and Dr. Todd Nicholas Fuchs to understand what it would mean to create a field of religion that considers queerness and a field of queer studies that considers religion. In episodes 6 and 7, I explored what it means to study religion queerly as a religious practitioner with senior pastor Cameron Barr and associate pastor Ian McPherson from the United Church of Christ, North Carolina. In episodes 8 to 10, I will ask queer activists how they view their religion and spirituality as a form of resistance and where they find the sacred in regards to their activism. And how do queer people of faith navigate institutions that have been historically oppressive to queer folk? These episodes feature Skidmore students Malkaja Hoskins, Abby Chicarone, and Destiny Donaldson. Episode 11, also noted as a special episode, asks what, it mean, asks what it means to tell the story of Stonewall as the birth of queer rights. From evaluating the ways in which queer religion classes have centered whiteness, I wanted to understand how Stonewall, as an origin story for queer folk in the United States, is a story of exclusion that has kept queerness, transness, and queer studies white. In doing so, I wanted to ask why Stonewall has become so important, and what it would mean for queer and religious studies to center people of color in queer religious narratives. As we approach the end of this episode, I want to note that Queer Theory must continue to tackle religion in queer theoretical approaches to understand how religion presents opportunities for queer liberation. Religious studies must also grapple with the additive model in order to understand how current approaches to queer religion are grounded in whiteness. As we continue in the academic study of queer studies, scholars of religion and queer theory need to begin to tackle religion in a queer theoretical approach to understand how religion presents opportunities for queer liberation in ways that secularism does not. In doing so, queer theorists must foreground challenges to normative approaches to LGBTQ plus identity in order to reframe religion as only an oppressive obstacle to overcome. Thank you for listening. I'm Rachel Worthwick, and this has been Out of the Closet and Into the Pews.